Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least. The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you, and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. Welcome, Matt. It's fantastic to have Matt Hancock with me on my podcast uh, today, and we're here talking about health. So it's fantastic to have a health secretary um, online who is able to tell us about the NHS um, and how it compares with the rest of the world, what are the issues facing this massive employee of people, I think the fifth, fifth biggest employer um, uh, in, the, in, in Europe, I think. Is that right? 1.4 million? Well, in the world, sorry. It, yeah, the NHS is only um, superseded in size in terms of employees by the, um, the, the, the Chinese army, the um, Indian railways, um, Walmart, and, and one other. I can't remember what the other one is. But anyway, it's a very large employer. of. Uh, must must have been extraordinary when you were, you know, handed something like that, a portfolio of that size and, you know, that sort of impact, um, not only on the budget of the government, but on people's individual and personalised lives. Yes. I mean, the thing about um, health services is that we, ha- we have an emotional relationship with them, right? Because your most difficult times in your life and your best times in your life are often experienced in a hospital. Um, and, um, uh, and, and so the relationship is not just about policy, important as that is. It's about it's a very emotional one, and I think that's why you know the, the, the we Brits regard the NHS with reverence. And you know it was Nigel Lawson who said it's the closest thing we've got to a national religion. Yeah. Um, and, and now, and the key is to make sure that we keep improving it um, and don't um, you know allow a deification to um, to, to freeze it in aspic, uh, and that that's that is the biggest challenge um is is making sure the nhs can be as good as it can be when people hold it with such high regard mm. i have to say when i watched the olympics in you know 2020 2012 yeah. london olympics I, I mean for someone who's been in the healthcare system myself as a doctor and, and on the board of a hospital I, I was just astounded that you know there was a big nhs bed we were at a, a sports you know yeah. experience you know, and yeah, it was the number one thing that the UK was proud of. Yes, that's right. Um, and, and the reason it brings people together is because if you think about it, um, it, it's that at that highly emotionally charged time, the nation through the uh, tax, through the taxes that they pay, the nation metaphorically comes to your bedside, you know, and the, the, the reassurance that you know that if you get ill, you will get good treatment is incredibly important you know that promise that healthcare will always be available to you and you know as a um, as a conservative um, I strongly believe in the NHS um, free at the point of use um, uh, because I think that it binds the country together 
I mean, it's also, by the way, really good for business and for employers because you don't have to provide private health insurance as well. So there's lots of sort of functional benefits. Um, there's and, and then there's the challenge of making sure it's run efficiently. And there's an endless debate about how efficient it is. Um, but the way I'd put it is that if you look at the total share of our national income in the UK that we um, spend on health, um, it is lower than in some other comparator countries. Um, uh, and the outcomes are better for in most place in most areas, especially in response to acute events. What we're not very good at because and I think this is partly because we have a free at the point of delivery service is preventative healthcare, is getting ahead of the curve and saying to people, this is how you can stay healthy in the first place. And so the NHS is too much of a national hospital service rather than a service to keep people healthy, which is something that the insurers uh, has put a lot of time and effort into. That's fascinating. I mean, um, in my first speech, actually, that's one of the things that um, I articulated as I care very much about is how do we move a healthcare system from being an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff um, to you know putting guardrails up at the top so people don't fall off. But yes. of course, as conservatives, um, I call myself a progressive conservative, which is slightly different from purely conservative, but you know, taking new ideas and moving forward, but not yeah. fixing what ain't broken is the way I would sort of see myself. Um, but I think how do you shift all the spending from the bottom of the of the of the of the cliff to the top? And you know, traditionally preventative health has been, you know, it's simply seen as you know, eat better, don't smoke, don't drink. Um, and that's a long way from a doctor's sort of um, remit, which is to fix someone's gallbladder that's sitting in front of them or, or fix their cancer that's turned up. And there's that sort of 20 or 30 or 40 years of lifestyle factors before they become outcomes that doctors are treating. But people are now starting to see it in terms of not just primary prevention, but secondary prevention, which is once someone comes into hospital, they might have had a fall and they're elderly. Do we make sure we wrap services around them and the hospital reaches into the home to keep them in homes? Uh, keep them at home. And yes. we know that in, in Australia, in particular, the aged care system and the healthcare system are very different sectors. And I think social spending and health spending here are in different pots, but they're becoming more intertwined. And how do we bring those better together so that they're looped up systems? Because one of the benefits of the NHS that we don't have in Australia is we have two layers of government responsible for health. We have the federal government responsible really for primary care and for drugs or for Medicare. And then we have the state system responsible for hospitals. So oh. even though in the Commonwealth Fund, um, you know, league table, we're one of the best healthcare systems in, in the world, in Australia, along with the UK, um, our population gets very frustrated by the political fights and the bun fights between blame shifting and cost shifting yeah. between the, the layers of government, which you don't have in the NHS. But you do have the distinction between social spending and health spending. So how, how does that work yeah. here in the UK? Yeah, so the, the, um, you know, this divide between primary care and secondary care is, is uh, increasingly defunct. Um, and it was introduced actually in the UK in uh, 1911. Um, and it was only until I changed the law a couple of years ago um, that secondary care, so hospitals, couldn't employ general practice uh, doctors, GPs. Um, there was a legal separation between primary and secondary care. Um, but this is, this is, this is ridiculous. Um, it, there is a continuum of health needs. Um, so all the way from 
you know, that which can easily be treated in a pharmacy, we do far too little in pharmacies in the UK, we should do far more, and um, like they do, for instance, in, in France, through general practice into secondary care, both elective and emergency, then, of course, to the great tertiary um, uh, you know, research and uh, 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 and um, highly unusual healthcare problems, um, and then to social care. Now, in our system, all of that is under one roof, except for social care, and that causes um, very significant challenges. If you put primary care and secondary care, you know, paid for by different taxpayers, essentially, which is why you know this different layers of government causes this tension, ultimately. Um, I, I can see why that would be a big problem. We found that the, the, the number one solution is high quality data. Yes. If you get the data architecture right, you can actually smooth over a lot of these problems, in particular between health and social care in our case. Um, and getting a decent data architecture is absolutely critical to a, to a health system for the future. Yeah, and that's what I find very interesting because you know, digitalization is coming at speed. Um, and the healthcare systems right around the world have been very sort of piecemeal at taking them up in a sort of sort of simplified way. But, you know, on the other hand, I think popul the population doesn't want Big Brother in the hands of government. Um, and what is interesting through COVID, um, in, in Australia we tried to introduce COVID Safe App, which was about, um, you know, putting your data um, with regards to moving about, a bit like what Hong Kong was doing. And there was this massive um, sort of... Um, backlash uh, in the Australian yeah. context and more than that people didn't take it up because they didn't really trust uh, that government could be trusted and yet the irony is all we were asking for was um, I think name gender date of birth in your postcode and it was all completely de-identified it was in your hands um, and yet um, when that didn't work some private companies decided to do it and it all worked beautifully and you look at the way that we give data across you know into our iPhones in order to find our favourite restaurant or to be able to travel very easily somewhere. Um, you know, people trust uh, big data companies, but they don't trust government with big data. The irony of that seems quite extraordinary. I don't think that's right, Katie. I don't think that's right because 98% um, of Brits have given their most sensitive personal data to the state and to the most sort of, you know, autocratic part of the state. When we sign up to have our iris scanned, for, the, for your passport. So people do trust the uh, state if there is a purpose to it. Right, yes. You know, and, yes. And, and people are willing to give your iris to the home office, iris scan, not the iris scan to the home office, um, just in return for getting through a quicker queue at Heathrow. Well, um, let, let's be clear about that, Matt. I don't think I realised I was giving them my iris scan. You're quite right. But that, that just shows I have, but I hadn't realised. Well, I'm sure they're very grateful. The <laughs> The ignorance, though, of what we do with our data is that yeah. if you don't tell people, then they're going to do it anyway. But if you yeah. tell people, they won't do it because they're frightened that you can't trust them. That's right. If you so, told so, me so you're giving the iris scan, maybe I'd feel differently. But I'm like, I just want to get through that gate quickly. I don't like the queue. Exactly. Exactly. And and um, so there are ways of the of the government providing the reassurance that's necessary because using that data is absolutely critical, not just for an individual. You know, if, if you um, turn up at uh, at A and E out cold, and all they can find out is your identity, then you sure as hell want them to find out if you have a penicillin uh, reaction problem, for instance. Um, and um, the the so the purpose is important, 
Um, but it's also about the efficiency running, of running a health service and the research agenda that can come off the top of it. I hope that we've moved significant strides forward in the pandemic because the vaccine rollout was such a yeah. success that and people saw the value of the NHS understanding a little bit about them so they could invite be invited uh, to an appointment in and out with, within 15 minutes and then you could use that in order to travel you know and get it on your smartphone on the NHS app you know there was a efficiencies was a, were great yeah. Exactly. And there was a real success story that was very tangible to people. Mm. And so in the future, when um, when those running health services, certainly here at the NHS and I hope around the world, will be able to say to people who are cautious about this, look, it's been done. It worked really well. So let's do it more broadly uh, for, for all sorts of other conditions. Absolutely. I mean, the amount of times patients, they have to fill out this form again. Haven't you got this data? Because they go to a different yeah. point. So the frustrations are extreme, but yeah, the simplification of health data collection and making sure that there's the right privacy laws around it. But to take that the next step um, into genetics, which is a place which I think the future of health is going into and helping people understand that, yes, there is privacy issues, there's trust around that and that um, the data will be managed properly. But that fear, I think, of people looking at a Gattaca equivalent, you know, that sci-fi movie um, you know trying to help people understand the practicalities of if you have this gene test you may be able to use this drug and not have a side effect or you might be able to use a better alternative drug because you are at risk of a side effect or you've got a cancer we're going to do your gene screening because that will help you know tailor the medicine to you um, or, or even being able to understand that you've got a preventable condition like hemochromatosis that if you've got one gene change you'll never get the disease because you just give blood and if you give blood, that's got a social good as well. So all of these, you know, new things coming at speed uh, in genetic technologies um, and, and, and helping the consumer and the patients catch up with that. Where do you see that going um, in the future with regards to digitalization, then also linked to things like genetic screening and med tech that's coming online? Well, I, I think that the, I think genomics is a, a revolution for the future of healthcare. Um, I think that it, it won't be long before... Uh, it is standard to have your uh, genome available. Um, of course, there needs to be a, a piece of education and patient care around that so that people can consent to what they want to know uh, and people will have to take an active choice. Uh, and it would be totally reasonable to have a default that you don't know anything and then you can um, take an informed um, decision to know the consequences of your genome being uh, sequenced. Um, but it, it, I, I think of it all in a, a part and parcel of the same thing, because ultimately what is your genome? It is just a very, very, very big data set about you. You know, it's just, it's, it's just a chunk of data. Uh, it happens to be um, important and, uh, and 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 makes us what we are but it nevertheless it, it, it you know you can strip it back and it's um it, it it's a long string of uh of of um four uh option um, four nucleotides hmm. yeah exactly and and so um i i think that the way that it then plays into healthcare is so important now this this is the really hard bit which is that um of course where a condition is an automatic result of a known mutation in one element of the 
uh, of the genome. In a way, that's the easy bit because that's the yeah there there is automatic. You know, um, ending the horrible odyssey of discovery that many people, especially with rare diseases, can take years, if not decades, to find out what is the root cause. You can end that at a stroke with a with a sequencing of the genome. Um, and then improve the way that they're careful, what have you. The much harder bit is when uh, genomic mutations lead to tendencies rather than absolutes. Uh, and I, I think that's, I, I, there's so much that we can do there to improve how healthcare is delivered. But nevertheless, the sensitivity required is much higher uh, because it's not an absolute. Um, uh, but, you know, when we properly... Uh, marry together your genomic data, your your experiential data. You know, I wear a, uh, a smartwatch. Many people do, um, and your data from your health records. That's when we'll truly find the insights that we need to. And we are getting there. You know, there are now hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people in the UK who've had their genome sequenced. Um, and the for us, the NHS is a great opportunity here because it's a trusted guardian in terms of the data, um, and because. All of the data it should and can therefore be in one place. Mm. Um, and uh, we're not quite there yet. You know, there's still some records that are on paper that need to be sorted in the, you know, in the. Oh, I heard you famously wanted to try and um, eradicate fax machines. Fax by machine. I know. I know. And I put out this, I put out a direction saying we're going to end the use of fax. I banned the purchase of fax machines and said we're going to use get rid. I saw it recently. There's still a hundred going. I mean, oh. they are they are the worst type of. Um, it's so insecure. You know, what if somebody else just happens to be standing by the fax machine? Yeah. It's not just about efficiency because they're spectacularly inefficient, but it's it's the it's the data security. I mean, yeah. if, if anybody in the NHS has still uses a fax machine, they should get rid of it now. It'd be far better just to send somebody an email on Gmail, you know, or <laughs> take a photo of the piece of paper and WhatsApp it. That would be or a put it on give it a pigeon carrier. <laughs> yeah, that, well, I'm not sure about that. They, uh, but you know, the you know, the modern technology is spectacularly more secure yep. than yep. the old technology, and um, and and there was this attitude in the NHS. I I don't know if it's the same in Australia that you know if it isn't invented in the NHS, then it can't be properly secure and good enough for them. And one of the things that we did right at the start of the pandemic was said, what matters is the data security, not the brand. So that opened up the use of, you know, Gmail and WhatsApp and all these services because, you know, the companies who work on them spend billions of pounds on data security and really care about it. So, it, you know, it doesn't have to be invented within the NHS uh, mm. to be used by the NHS. I don't know if you have yeah. that. Well, well Australia is much more derivative. We're good at stealing other people's ideas and making them work for us. So um, we watch the epidemics happening overseas and we act ahead, but we act in response. So, for instance, with HIV, we had a really great response because we saw what was happening in the US. I mean, I would argue it with COVID, we're probably one of the um, you know few countries that was leading the way in a number of things, which is unusual for us. We, we tend to follow. Um, and that may have been because we were right in the heart of the pandemic. And most people don't quite realise that our response, because we were in Southeast Asia, um, was actually quite um, quite amazing because we got onto test and trace. We got onto closing borders early. Yeah. We, we were actually ahead of the curve. And, in fact, when we first talked about closing the borders, we, there was a lot of international backlash about how stupid we were. And, and that proved to be probably one of the most decisive things that we did yes. um, during 
COVID. And then we also got onto track and tracing very quickly. Um, but talking about um, trusting data, uh, the US, for instance, didn't trust uh, sequencing from Australia. We had the, we were the first to sequence the virus. Um, and so it had to sequence it itself. It's like you said, the NHS doesn't trust information from outside the NIH didn't trust information from anywhere else. So it sequenced itself. And the test, the COVID test, um, was incorrectly, um, the outcome was incorrect. And they ended up being delayed six weeks um, to get COVID testing off the ground to late February before they had a, a COVID test ready to go. Well, we already had COVID testing in mid-January, I think. Yeah. So that's an example of countries not listening um, to others who are leading the way and not yeah. trusting anyone but their own data but just to move on from from you know talking about um the systems talking about health literacy and and that does follow on because i think covid's been incredibly powerful in increasing upskilling health literacy in the population I'm, I'm a public health professor and you know people being able to talk about um you know quite complex epidemiological concepts um to me was extraordinary to watch because you know as a, a medical researcher and a, and a, and a pediatrician we spend spend a lot of time talking to the media, trying to upskill people's health literacy. And now we had premiers of states and, and prime ministers um, and ministers of health speaking to the general population on a daily basis. So it's been an extraordinary opportunity. But if we apply that then to genetics and the genomic revolution coming at speed, um, do you think there's been benefits of upskilling people so that they can you know, use their own data, whether it's genetic data or, as you say, just other forms of biological data, and that they've become... Uh, more open to using data and therefore more empowered to be in control of their health? Yes, is the short answer. Um, I, I hope it lasts. So just to put a, you know, a note of caution, I hope it lasts. Um, you know, we, uh, I introduced the NHS app just before the pandemic for people to be able to engage better with their healthcare. And we didn't know what would drive up user uptake. We thought there'd be maybe a million people who were you know, actively enthusiastic about managing their own health through it. But of course, the pandemic led to more than half the population downloading. And uh, and that's obviously a good thing. And, you know, people have engaged with science like never before. Um, I, I hope that it lasts and I hope that people stay engaged. Um, it'll be quite hard to know the extent to which they um, uh, they do. But I think it's important. Yeah. In Australia, we've, um, you know, 4% of our um, GDP is spent on health. By 2040, just because of an ageing population, it's expected to be 8%. Um, and we've got obviously a narrowing tax base as people age and leave work. Um, and so, you know, there's going to be this big <laughs> increase on spending on health in the future. And I'm, that's true for all developing developed countries, but even more so in the aged care sector as, as, as our population ages and the end of life you know, years are the ones that are the most expensive to the healthcare, but also to, to aged care. You know, in, in the UK, how do you see, you know, with more expensive drugs coming at speed, you know, with an ageing population, with people expecting higher quality health, you know, are the, are the systems we have in place sustainable? Is, is the NHS going to be sustainable into the future? Well, the, it can be. It can be. It's a, you know, it is a big challenge because... Um, of all the reasons that you set out, so demands increase. Um, the note of optimism is that the new technologies coming down the track have the potential to reduce future costs of healthcare. Whereas in the past generation, new technologies, in, in particular new drugs and pharmaceuticals, increased the cost of healthcare. 
so there is a that's the that is the opportunity that needs to be seized managing the overall cost is hard right that is is difficult because when you you know when you have a healthcare problem you know it matters more than all the money that you've got um and um uh, and, and we've managed that with the nhs throughout its whole life i mean after all you know, one of the one of the things that brought down the 1945 Labour government was that when they introduced free glasses um, and eye tests on the NHS, the demand was spectacularly higher than they thought because a huge number of people had undisclosed uh, uh, sight problems um, wow. uh, that the, they couldn't afford to get glasses until they were made. You know, they were made freely available and. There was this revealed demand, and we've got a problem now of demand that was suppressed during COVID um, for good and bad reasons, and is now revealing itself back to the NHS, and hence it's under massive pressure. Managing that is difficult, but the but I come back to where we started our conversation, which is you can only do that if you modernise the service and make sure that it's efficient. Well, you know, I suppose having been health secretary, what would you say would be you know, your biggest win? What was the day that you went, wow, this is this has really worked well for me and I feel like I've made a big impact? Oh, without doubt, the vaccine programme, the rollout of the vaccine, so having the first vaccine in the world signed off and, um, uh, and, uh, and um, injected uh, in Coventry. Um, I gave the team at the start of 2020, I gave the team a year. They said it would normally be five years but they thought they might be able to do it in 18 months to get a vaccine going and you talked about um uh, testing early on and expanding testing was you know that was really tough early on but getting the vaccine that was the way yeah. that was what got us out of the out of the pandemic ultimately yeah um, and it's funny because you know um the oxford vaccine is you know well known as as the british one that that came second i didn't mind at all what i wanted was a vaccine for the british population and ultimately for the world and, you know, I guess tied to that, the um, that Oxford vaccine we made available to the whole world at cost. And there was then this huge debate about um, the intellectual property of the vaccines and should the companies be charging. And I just looked at it and thought, well, we're, we're miles ahead of you guys. You know, we, we did yeah. this. We did this deal a year ago. Um, and um, now almost half of the vaccines in the world have been the Oxford vaccine done at cost. Uh, funded by British taxpayers. I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say we were, you know, whooping and cheering on our side of the pond, but, um, you know, it unfortunately became unstuck simply from a political reason. So, um, you know, at AstraZeneca, we knew it was going to be, or the Oxford vaccine was going to be the backbone of um, the vaccine rollout around the world because, you know, it was something that Oxford did a deal with you to say, you know, we're going to do this. Uh, and I just thought that was an extraordinary gift to the world. Um, and in Australia, unfortunately, the side effects um, somehow got ahead of us and we could never really get that genie back in the box. So, yeah, it yeah. was, you know, we had a diversified portfolio of vaccines that we were looking at, including an Australian-based vaccine um, developed at UQ, which unfortunately um, resulted in people testing HIV positive in a false positive way because the, the vaccine oh, backbone wow. was based on HIV. Okay. So uh, that was rather unfortunate. But uh, we had all sorts of sort of um, political problems with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was really unfortunate. But anyway, yeah. it was 
regarded. So I mean, the, look, the standing ovation at Wimbledon was extraordinary. extraordinary. It, it, it came under it came under sustained political attack that was essentially begun by the European Union in a totally unfortunate and unnecessary way. You know, and I had uh, personally insisted on uh, the exclusivity of the first hundred million doses for the for the UK, um, and um, the European Commission were under massive pressure because they were. Uh, behind the curve um, and they decided to try to get through that political pressure by having a go at the Brits and the British vaccine and it was uh, you know I, I put in the exclusivity deal because I was worried about Donald Trump uh, getting wow. you know, uh, somehow getting his hands on the vaccine and stopping us from being able to get hold of it I didn't know that I should have been more worried about Ursula von der Leyen but you know it, it was a it was a it was a it was a, it was a massive mistake by the European Union that had consequences all around the world in terms yes. of. Well, uh, uh, in, in, a, in Australia, got politicised, and Labor basically got to the point where they're almost saying, if you're pro-liberal party, then you'll believe in AstraZeneca. If you're pro-Labor, you believe in Pfizer. And I actually stood up in the full Parliament and said, "Shame on you! That is yeah. not in the national interest." Those sorts of you know unhinged and unprofessional comments were driving up vaccine hesitancy. And you know, everyone looks back and shakes their head and says, "What on earth actually happened there?" But that's an example of politicisation of healthcare in a yeah. very unfortunate way. That is outrageous. The idea that you can get elected to parliament on that sort of platform is just terrible. God, I hope you win your seat back. The um, you know, <laughs> thank it, you. So it, do I. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it, it's it's it, you know, it's antediluvian. Um, in fact, we didn't because it was all done through the NHS. We didn't allow people to choose, yes, uh, unless you were under forty. Yeah, um, in which case the preference was to have the Pfizer vaccine, but an AstraZeneca vaccine was still better than no vaccine. Yes. And this is, I think, what people didn't... You know, don't well, this is the problem for us in Australia is actually because we had that sort of lockdown um, approach, um, you know, which we probably did a lot rather overly enthusiastically, I think, in the Liberal-based um, state, New South Wales, it was done more light-handedly, while in, um, in Victoria, the Labor-led government basically um, seemed to take the, almost the CCC, CCP playbook and we had, um, you know, the world's longest lockdown, um, unfortunately, uh, in Melbourne, which has caused all sorts of ongoing healthcare problems, mental health issues, even still today. Um, but, you know, it is interesting because the way that the political parties responded, um, you know, came up with this very different response and not necessarily, um, you know, evidence-based, expert-informed, but, you know, differences yeah. in opinions about how to do things. Yeah. And, and that, that, that whole AstraZeneca versus Pfizer uh, ended up confusing people and making them quite angry with government because they didn't know which one that they should choose and they weren't being given the choice. Yeah, wow. Wow, well, I'm glad we avoided that. <laughs> well, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time and um, look forward to watching your crew with uh, a great deal of interest. You've made a massive impact um, on the world's health and, and rolling out the vaccine and, and leading that rollout and, 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 you know, shepherding your country through its toughest times. It's been an enormous privilege to speak to you and I've really enjoyed our time together. Great pleasure, Katie. Thank you very much for having me on. Lovely. Thanks, Matt.